0: This is In-House Insiders, a podcast from the Association of Corporate Counsel, where you'll hear from the most interesting in-house legal professionals in Australia. On the show, we'll explore their stories, the challenges they've faced along the way, and the lessons they've learned that have defined their careers. I'm your host, Mae Ramsey, and I'm the Group Executive, Legal, Governance and Regulatory Affairs at Medibank. In today's episode, we're speaking to Malcolm Hack. Malcolm is the Group General Counsel and Chief Compliance Officer at the Australian-based Mining Multinational Orica. Malcolm has followed a unique path to where he is today. We talk with Malcolm about his move to an in-house role earlier in his career than most others, the lessons he's learnt from working all over the world, and the skills he's developed to maintain relationships across borders. Alright, let's dive in. Malcolm, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. I thought I might just start off with a question just to get to know you a bit better. I think it's fantastic that you're the Chief Compliance Officer and Group General Counsel at Orica. Can you tell us a bit about how you got to where you are today?
1: certainly. And May, thank you very much to you and to the ACC for having me. So I've had a very interesting, I would say an exciting journey. And what I have found throughout is that it's absolutely critical to have people in your corner. I've mentioned family, friends, mentors, coaches, uh, people that believe in you and people that open doors and give you a chance. And, And it's because of all those people that I am where I am today. I'd also say that I don't think my career started out as the traditional course of many lawyers. What I did find is that when I was finishing high school, I did soul searching and realised that university wasn't right for me at that point in time in my life. And coming from a family of uh, people who had trades, uh, I decided to follow that same path and to learn a trade. And for several years I actually studied hairdressing and uh, I qualified as a hairdresser but not a very good one I must admit. I do remember one time at a competition cutting a person's neck with blood streaming down their sleeve realising that perhaps this is not right for me and I think that you would say that that person also felt that it wasn't right for them as well. So I then reflected on my life and looked around and realized that I needed to do something more, and uh, so I went to law school. I studied there and and graduated, and upon graduating, I then went directly into in-house roles. It was here that I actually completed my articles. I also did a secondment at a top-tier law firm, and it was during that secondment that I realized I needed more out of my professional career and training than what I was getting in-house. And so I took the leap and uh, moved into a top tier Australian law firm. I was at that law firm for several years. During that period of time, again, soul searching, trying to understand what I was good at, trying to understand what I actually really enjoyed about practicing law. And it was that interaction with the business, that deep interaction. So I took the opportunity to move back in house and I joined a mining company as their major projects lawyer. I'd have to say that this was a defining moment for me in that I had a very supportive general counsel, and he was very keen to get his lawyers out of the office, onto the site, to meet with the people, to understand the projects, to understand the risks. And that was a great in-house counsel learning moment for me. It was the importance of understanding the business, understanding the people, understanding the risks, and being a part of it and not sitting in an office. That company was then acquired and as a result of that acquisition, I moved on to another in-house role. I moved to a Fortune 500 multinational company with the exciting opportunity of setting up and leading legal teams across various countries. I stayed with that company for over a decade and really grew as a lawyer, a leader and as a person. It was here that I had another great in-house council learning moment for me, and that was the importance of team and my passion for the development of the team and its members. It was because of this passion that I then decided to move to Aurica. Aurica provided me with a great opportunity to lead and develop its team and to also return to Australia, because prior to that, I'd been in the UAE and the UK for over seven years. And I've been fortunate, actually, with my career as well, offering the opportunity to take on the chief compliance officer role, which I assumed last year, and I really enjoy that additional insight into the business and its risk profile.
0: Thank you, Malcolm. Wow, what an amazing journey so far and so many twists and turns. I'd actually like to go back to the, just the very beginning of your story where you mentioned that you went straight into in-house That's, you know, as we know, not traditional for a lot of in-house lawyers. And in fact, ACC research shows that only about 11% of law graduates actually move directly in-house. Can you tell me a bit about, from those early days, why do you think you ended up directly going in-house? And a follow-up question, why do you think we have such low numbers of law graduates going directly in-house?
1: It was really by chance and circumstance. I wouldn't say that I had a great plan when I graduated from university. That certainly wasn't the case. I think like many law graduates, I had aspirations. I actually wanted to be a tax lawyer at some point, And thankfully, I would have to say that that didn't happen for me. <laughs> but it was the move from the Gold Coast. As I mentioned, I had articles lined up on the Gold Coast in Queensland. But it wasn't right for me. And so I moved to Melbourne and took on the in-house role. So it was really by chance that that opportunity came about. In relation to why do I think there are such low numbers, I think that's for a number of reasons. I don't think in-house legal teams are well equipped to take on junior lawyers, particularly those that are just graduating from university. In-house legal teams, by their very nature in my view, tend to be very lean. We tend to be quite a flat structure. We tend to be quite small in size. And we tend to be filled with mainly mid level to senior level lawyers who really are required to do everything that an in house counsel is required to do. And we also have quite uh, tight budget constraints. So the ability to actually bring someone in straight from university, to actually dedicate the time that is needed to develop that person to allow them to grow, is challenged. And I would say that there's only a few in house teams that actually have the capability to do that. So unless in-house teams and corporates are willing to change, are able to actually dedicate the time to train people, I think we will always struggle to attract graduates into in-house roles, which I think is sad. I think that it's a great learning opportunity. I loved my time as a junior lawyer in-house. I thought I learned a great deal. And I'd like to be able to offer that opportunity going forward. I was fortunate actually in the Middle East where I actually took on two people straight from law school. Uh, but again, different circumstance. Uh, we didn't have the cost pressures that we do, particularly here in Australia. And those people were very successful in their roles and really developed within the business. But they also had a passion and eagerness uh, that perhaps you may not see in mid-level to top-level lawyers. Yes. And I
0: think you're so right there, Malcolm. You know, There's it has to be the right environment. You have to have the right support mechanisms and frameworks around young lawyers. They are going to move directly from graduate to in-house. And so it has to be the right place and right time. You mentioned the Middle East there, and I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, your time working overseas. You mentioned that you spent some time in the UAE and UK, and you know there's some pretty different cultures that you would have experienced during your time overseas. Can you tell me a little bit about the challenges you faced when acclimatising to these different cultures?
1: Certainly. I, that was a great experience And both of those. Obviously, the UK was far more familiar to me. But the UAE, I was lucky to have actually spent several years going back and forth on a regular basis, probably every quarter for around one to two weeks uh, before the family moved. And so I, I actually had of fair insight into the culture there the way that business operated thankfully as well english was the business language so i did not have to learn arabic i did try and i failed there i realized that languages is not a strong suit of mine but what was interesting and what was a challenge was actually acclimatizing the family uh, so My wife signed up sight unseen, she'd never been to the Middle East, but agreed to move, which I thought was a brave thing for her, particularly given that she doesn't like the heat. And we actually went over on a reconnaissance mission, probably, well, it was during Ramadan around September, incredibly hot, uh, not allowed to drink or eat in public. Thankfully, the children had stayed in Australia. We were there looking for houses. And that was her first introduction to the Middle East and she still agreed to go. Uh, We went over there and so the the main challenge for me is really getting buy-in from your family. I've heard too many horror stories where people have committed to go yet their family's not fully committed and when they're there, they're only there for a short period of time because the family ends up not liking that posting. The second one for me is really understanding the people. And I've been fortunate to have very good people that I've worked with that have been in those countries, including South Africa, where I've spent a lot of time and a long secondment. It's having those people there to invite you to their homes, to sit down and talk with you on a personal level around what the challenges are living in those countries, particularly in the UAE, where the significant majority are expats from various countries and various cultures. And it's really a melting pot and so I still to this day have a very good friend that I've made over there. He's from Pakistan and he was really the main person that assisted me in understanding and navigating the cultural challenges and and differences within the UAE. As I mentioned before, the UK, very similar to Australia, it was actually nice to be somewhere cold uh, and somewhere green after spending such a long time in a very hot uh, and dry area.
0: Very different cultures between, as you say, the UK and the UAE. Can you talk a bit about some of the benefits you've seen from your time overseas?
1: Yes, I encourage anyone to take the opportunity to move overseas, and I've actually been able to offer that opportunity to a member of my team here. I think there are so many opportunities, both professionally and personally. I think for a family, you get to experience different parts of the world, and given Australia is so far from everywhere. One of the things we loved was actually just being able to take a relatively short flight and be in a different country, in a different culture. So I think from a personal level, there's great learnings to be had, great experiences. What is somewhat disappointing, I find my children went over very young and they've forgotten a lot of the experiences that they've had and so it's a matter of reminding them through photos and the like. But in addition to the personal experiences, business experiences, very significant and it's the cultural aspects. It's risk understanding. How do different cultures deal with different risks? It's very much understanding communication. Uh, humans very much need to be able to effectively communicate and being overseas and dealing with different people allows you to understand different forms of communication. I also think it teaches empathy uh, and, and it teaches collaboration and understanding. So uh, I would encourage anyone who has that opportunity to to take that opportunity and explore what it's like overseas.
0: I know one of the great things of going overseas is getting to taste the local cuisine. Often locals like to you know show visitors uh, some of their strange and incredible dishes. I wonder whether you've had any of those moments where you may have bonded over something which wouldn't
1: be on your usual menu to eat. Yes. I've got a very adventurous uh, palate. So there weren't too many offerings that were unusual, uh, but certainly there were many opportunities to try the local cuisine. And that was something that I embraced. And particularly in the UAE, where there was a, a significant Indian influence. And uh, growing up in the Gold Coast, we didn't have a strong Indian community, uh, so I didn't really experience that food, whereas now I'm passionate about it. I think it's a, a beautiful food, and that was something that really uh, I developed over my time at the UAE and uh, developed friendships as a result of that. Another example was when I was in Maputo in Mozambique. And we were there for work, a busload of people from the company that I was with, plus contractors. And we ended up having a braai, a barbecue uh, on the beach. And it was just local seafood that had been caught that day. So while not unusual food, uh, it was certainly local food. Uh, It was a great environment and allowed for bonding of the various people involved. And today I'm still friends with one of the people that I was traveling with. So I think there, again, there are great opportunities to just experience the local food and to build relationships.
0: And talking about relationships, obviously you now work for Orica, a multinational company and You've had many experiences working overseas, so you'd have a great perspective on how to maintain relationships over large distances. What are some of the biggest challenges when doing this and what are some strategies that you've used to maintain these relationships?
1: So I'd say there's not one size fits all. I I find that relationships by their very nature are personal. And so it's really understanding the person that you want that relationship with, understanding what makes them tick, understanding how they communicate, understanding, particularly when working with people overseas, understanding if they're a morning person or an evening person. It's not wise, for example, to get someone on the the phone at 6am their time in the morning if they're normally going to bed at midnight. 2am, that just doesn't work and and they're not really going to be at their best game. So I spend a lot of time up front understanding each person, understanding their personal aspects, understanding their family situation, understanding how they're working and particularly in this pandemic, there are many stresses upon many people and so it's understanding what those stresses are, understanding how I can help them with those This is from a team environment, not from a a business stakeholder environment, and working with them uh, to to address those issues. I also find that some people would prefer to have group calls, whereas other people would prefer to have individual calls. And we also try to work on the frequency and cadence of those calls. So do people prefer on a weekly basis, daily basis? And so really, uh, I do work with everyone to try and best understand what works for them. With regard to stakeholders, again, it's trying to understand what are their pressures? What are the competing pressures? And how do I make myself available for those people at a time that works? And so so the, the nub of all of this is really understanding the individual and understanding their circumstances. And I suppose that goes to answering your question in relation to any particular strategies. It's really about understanding the people, what makes them tick. There are also other tools that I use. For example, I do stakeholder mapping. So for all of my team members, I identify where they sit, what are their pressures, uh, what what's their responsibility. I also then overlay that with the business stakeholders to understand where they sit uh, and also to understand where there are gaps in my relationships with each of them. And that allows me to then identify perhaps what I need to change, what I need to do to improve those relationships, strengthen those relationships or rekindle those relationships.
0: That sounds like a great technique. And I wonder whether that stakeholder mapping was something that one of the general counsels that you mentioned earlier on in your introduction taught you.
1: Well, no, it was actually, uh, it was a general counsel plus also one of my coaches. And it really resonated with me. And one of the things about training and learning, I think, is We learn so many things and I forget most of those things I learn. And so it's very helpful to be reminded. And uh, that stakeholding mapping has has helped me throughout my career.
0: You mentioned that after you'd gone back into private practice for a stint and then you moved out again to join a mining company and that that was quite a pivotal moment for you in your in-house career. And that the General Counsel there took a certain approach to how they wanted their lawyers, their in-house team, to interact with the business. Can you maybe just expand on that a little bit? And what did you learn from that experience that you could share with the in-house community?
1: His view was one of, we are here to be a business partner to work with business to help them solve issues and address issues and manage risk. And his view was that we can't do that sitting behind our desk in Melbourne when the mine site, for example, might be in Perth. So there was very much in his mind a need to get out to site. Uh, there was that encouragement to all of his team members, not an expectation, but an encouragement for them to understand their business. And I remember it was probably in the first six months of my time there, we were negotiating a raised bore drilling contract uh, with a major contractor. And we were in heavy negotiations over the liability and indemnity provisions. And I went into the GC and I was talking with him about the issues. And he said, Malcolm, I'm not quite sure whether they are the real issues. So I suggest that you go to site, meet with the relevant people, meet with our people, meet with the contractor, inspect what you're talking about and then let's talk. So flew to Perth, I went below ground. It was probably around 800 metres. It was certainly below the water limit, wearing all of the safety gear, was told to tuck the pants into the boots, which I did. And then as soon as we went below the water level, water starts streaming down, down the pants, into the boots. It was the way for the people at site to teach me, I feel, someone from the city, really of what can happen. Just a simple thing about tucking your pants into your boots and then you get water in and waterlogged. And I was down there for probably around 10 minutes, which seemed to me at that point in time for a very long period of time, and then came back up. And it made me realise that the issues that I was concerned about were not the real issues. So that was a great learning for me and something that I've carried through to this day, particularly with my junior lawyers, where we are talking about liability, where we are talking about risk. It's a matter of making sure that we understand what that risk is. And to do that, it's very difficult just sitting behind a desk Now, I think we've all struggled over the last 12 months with the pandemic and with travel restrictions. Uh, And I think we've all done our best to try and understand those risks virtually. But there is no substitute, I believe, for getting out, meeting with the people, seeing the issues firsthand for lawyers to be in-house lawyers and uh, those in private practice to, to be effective in understanding the issues at hand.
0: You mentioned when you moved to the multinational after that mining company that that was another moment for you in your career where you discovered your passion for developing people and the importance of team. I know in working in-house one of the common comments that in-house lawyers make is it's difficult to get that experience of managing team given the flat structures that most of our teams have. What advice would you have for lawyers who are looking to develop some team management skills but don't necessarily have that formal team to manage?
1: That's a good question, Mayor. I've been very fortunate for most of my in-house career where I have had teams and uh, when I moved to that multinational, I was the only lawyer uh, and so really had a remit to develop that team. So there was a period of time where I didn't have members of my legal team but still needed to be effective in, in the business. And so it was one around understanding, and this comes back to stakeholder mapping, understanding those people within the business that are doing tasks or roles similar to me or that are touching on the same risk issues or issues generally that I'm dealing with. And because it took some time to develop a strategy and to get approval for bringing on more people and developing that legal team that was something that I very much did at the early phase and so it was talking to people in finance for example who had similar responsibilities it was talking to people in the commercial part of the business as well who were negotiating with clients and getting to understand them and then seeing where there are possibilities or options for leading. And it may not be leading something to do with my direct responsibilities. It might be something to do with leading something that is related to risk management generally, or it may not be risk management at all. For example, it might be dealing with an employment matter or just dealing with commercial responsibilities. So it's a matter of, if you don't have a team to manage, Look for other opportunities within your business where you can volunteer, to take on responsibilities where there will be a team. And there are many projects that organisations undertake where it's necessary for a team to be formed and for someone to be a leader and someone to manage that project. So I think for those that don't have a team or have a small team and they're looking to develop that leadership and management capability, it's potentially looking outside the realms of the legal team, looking into other parts of the business and seeing where you can volunteer or seeing where you think there might be a gap and actually going and speaking with people and saying, I think this is a great opportunity for us to put together a group of people and to look at this issue as a collaborative group to better understand how the organisation's dealing with it.
0: Thanks, Malcolm. Now we're on to the quick fire round. If you met your 21-year-old self, what advice would you give them? Be happy. What is one skill you've really had to develop through your in-house role?
1: The ability to be kind on myself. Where do you go to upskill? Various places, internet, lectures, books, people, any, anywhere that I can gain information.
0: Who's someone you really admire?
1: The GC that I was talking about before.
0: What's one item on your bucket list?
1: To be able to retire before I'm 80.
0: What's your favourite hobby? Cycling. What are you reading at the moment?
1: Kids' books.
0: What is the first thing you do when you get up in the morning?
1: Have a cup of coffee.
0: Well, thank you so much, Malcolm, for joining me today and, and for being patient with my quickfire questions. I really appreciate it. I'd have to say that hairdressing's loss is our game and that the <laughs> ACC in-house legal community is richer for having you as a member. And it's been fascinating to hear about your experiences both here in Australia and abroad. So thank you.
1: Thank you very much, mate. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. You've been
0: listening to In-House Insiders, a podcast about the stories, challenges and lessons learnt by Australia's top in-house legal professionals. In-House Insiders is produced by the Association of Corporate Counsel. ACC's purpose is to support the professional and business interests of in-house counsel through information, education, networking and advocacy initiatives. I've personally been an ACC member for 15 years And I continue to remain a member for the fantastic peer networking opportunities I get and the access to tailored CPDs that cater for every stage of an in-house lawyer's career. If you're not a member already, you can join me and over 45,000 other in-house counsel from around the world. For more information about ACC or to join, please visit the website acc.com. This has been In-House Insiders. I'm Mae Ramsey and I'll speak to you next time.